Well, obviously, we're going to continue in our study of this survey of church history, and every time I start preparing and, and I arrive at this particular moment in time, um, there's an element of tension or frustration for me because I never feel like I'm prepared. There's just so much information that I feel like I have not really uh, synthesized into anything that I could effectively communicate uh, in, in a coherent way, and and yet uh, here we are, and, and, and so I just uh, ask that you continue to pray for my wisdom as I try to cull th- some of these things down into something that we can kind of work our way through in, in a fairly effective way and trust the Lord to use it um, for His glory. So we've been sort of working underneath this larger idea or this larger theme of transition, this major transition that really acts uh, in, in broad strokes represents, and then of course in specific examples, specific movements um, you can clearly see happening. Just to kind of put the context in place for us once again, we sort of started by looking at how this is a major transition from the empty tomb and the resurrection really to this gospel witness to the ends of the earth. And if you just think about that in its context and think about how you had these 12 disciples who were following Jesus and his ministry for three years and there was no shortage of of confusion about what all this really meant, even up until the time right before Christ's ascension. There was still a little bit of a misunderstanding about the, the coming of the kingdom. The question was asked even right before he ascended. And so this, this transition from this ministry with Christ to the turmoil and the confusion and the anxiety of the crucifixion, the wonder and amazement of the resurrection, and then the disciples having to kind of start to pull all this together and the Spirit of God bringing to mind all the things that they had been taught, and then the coming of the Spirit at, at Pentecost and the ministry that ensued beyond that. This is just, just the events themselves as, as, it, as it kicks off in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. You can just think about this in its historical context and kind of place ourselves in that period of time with those people and recognize that this is a major transition of life, of ministry, of outlook, of God, understanding God's redemptive work. Um, this just can't be overstated. We also talked about how this represents a major transition from uh, Judaism to Christianity, and again, using the term Judaism to Christianity to really refer to this Jewish-centric mission and ministry as it transitions from that to a more Gentile focused uh, ministry um, in the, on the pages of Scripture and Acts, and how that was, that was also represented by major transitions of understanding of theology. Uh, we had you know, one of the more prominent examples of Peter and his encounter with Cornelius and the visions that he had. He had to have this vision three times. He was pondering. He was perplexed. He really didn't understand what it meant, and he finally realized when he gets in front of Cornelius, and the Spirit of God continues to kind of solidify these things in his mind, and he realizes that this gospel is also for the Gentiles, which represents another element of this major transition that's underway. We talked last week a little bit about how there's also a corresponding transition from Jerusalem to Antioch as sort of the focal point of the life and ministry of the church as as Luke records it in Acts. Um, you have this transition that really you know, it gets underway. Um, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, you start to see this, this movement take place. But Acts chapter 11 really puts it in prominent focus. You have um, there in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, you see where the gospel was brought to Antioch by the Jewish Christians who were, 
uh, scattered or dispersed as a result of the persecution after the stoning of Stephen. Persecution, by the way, which was led initially by Saul. You, know, you have this large number of Gentiles who are coming to Christ, and this is likely kind of the mid-40s A.D. You see that referenced in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, this continuing growing number of... Excuse me, I keep doing the wrong thing here. This growing number of... Um, Gentiles, excuse me, I have to get my notes to work. There we go. Um, we then have in um, Acts more Christians uh, under Barnabas' ministry after he has sent Antioch uh, from Jerusalem. You see that in Acts chapter 11, verses 23 to 24. So you see this growing ministry, this growing church in Antioch there as more and more Gentile believers are coming to faith in Christ. Paul ends, uh, Barnabas ends up going to Tarsus to bring Paul back to Antioch, and there they begin to minister together uh, in that, that largely Gentile uh, Christian community. This is the first place, by the way, where the Christians are referred to as Christians. This is probably about AD 45, the mid-AD uh, 40s, if you will, this is taking place. But this just represents this major transition both uh, from, from the very beginning to the, to the empty tomb all the way to the ends of the earth, we see this, this spread of the gospel as it continues to move out. Uh, you also see this major transition in thinking. You see this, we'll see this even more today and as we look more closely at Paul's first missionary journey. But it just, just, just to understand that we're talking about over a decade of time that this process was underway, this massive movement from Pentecost to Gentiles, brought into um, the faith and being partakers of the gospel of Christ. So a longer period of time than what the reading of the pages of Scripture might uh, imply to us as as we read through it. Um, You also have in Acts, just to kind of catch us up and and help us sync up in in Acts in particular in the flow of the narrative uh, that Luke records for us, you have a really important historical note. Uh, Again, this is just one example that I would highlight for us. Um, that, that really uh, presents to us how careful a, a historian Luke was. Um, we've talked about this early on in our study, but this is just another good example of how Luke uh, presents information in the, in the flow of the narrative that he's ta- attaching to the broader flow of history that will be cited in other historical works um, over and over again. You see this happening, but you see one here at the end of Acts chapter 11, Verses 27 to 30, it says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Again, this focus on Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, the emperor Claudius. So the disciples determined every one, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you have this reference to a major famine that takes place in, in Judea. And of course, that also encompasses Jerusalem. So you have the believers in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, that is on the suffering end of this particular um, famine. And, and so you have this reference where you have Agabus, a Jewish prophet, who's, who's predicting this famine to come about. Well, you have in the first century a Roman historian named Suetonius who writes of this famine in his life of Claudius. You have a first century Jewish historian, Josephus, I'm sure you've heard of him, 
who writes of this famine in his Jewish antiquities. You have a 4th century historian who is also a student of Augustine named Erasius, who writes of this famine during the reign of Claudius uh, and dates it around AD 46 to 47. So you have all these different historical references from these different historical figures who are not tied to gospel literature, who are not tied to the gospel mission per se, and, and they are affirming this as a part of the history of this region of the world. It, this is also uh, an important element of, of really thinking about, um, that we'll talk about as we get on into uh, dealing with uh, the, the charismatic movement and the, sort of the Pentecostal movement. This, this deals with the issue of prophecy or legitimate prophecy or valid prophecy. And uh, there's some controversy over the valid uh, nature of prophecy, whether it needs to always come true or can sometimes not come true. And Agabus uh, appears again toward the end of Acts where he predicts how the Apostle Paul will be captured and what kind of suffering he will endure if he goes back to Jerusalem um, toward the end of his uh, ministry that's recorded in Acts and before he's taken captive and then and shipped off to Rome. You have Agabus showing up and predicting that, and there are those that say it didn't really happen that way. And so there's an example of, of a prophet who could sometimes be wrong and still be a valid prophet. So we'll get into that later. But this is one where it's tied to actual history that's, that's, that's captured for us in the broader scope of historical record. And so Luke is, is very good about sort of capturing some of these facts. He does something similar uh, to some extent in, in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 12, which really is sort of like a, a hinge chapter. It's sort of the, 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 it's like the door turning on a hinge where you see some, some just some historical and factual um, interlude in this transition passage where you have in Acts chapter 12 the record of the martyrdom of John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of Andrew, the first of the, of the original 12 who is martyred at the hand of, of Herod, killed by his sword. You have subsequent to that the imprisonment of Peter, um, who Herod, Herod recognizes that people are pleased by that imprisonment. Yeah. Did you read James? Who did I say? John. Yes, yeah, sorry. My mistake. Yes. I'm rewriting history as we speak, by the way. Um, just, and I'm, it's really frustrating that you have to edit my, my rewrite like that. I, I, I was on a roll. Thank you for that correction. Yes. Um, so you have that record there, and then you have the record of Peter's uh, being imprisoned, sort of on the heels of this same martyrdom, uh, and Herod imprisons him. He's, he's enjoying the, the favor of the Jews as a result of, of this martyrdom, and so he imprisons Peter. And then you have Peter's miraculous uh, release from prison that's recorded there. And then you get down to the end of that chapter, and you see the, the death of Herod, and, and that's also sort of a historical um, parallel that you find captured in other historical records. So Luke is just providing this transition. Really, this represents this transition from, like I said, formally Jerusalem to Antioch, and in in, in formally, in a way, from a focus on Peter and his ministry to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So you have this, this sort of this transition that's sort of taking place there in Acts chapter 12. And so you have uh, really what is... Um, this movement from, like I said, this focus of ministry in Jerusalem, in the church of Jerusalem, to Antioch as being not only a growing uh, and thriving church that is largely Gentile in its orientation, but it also becomes the sort of the launching platform for Paul's missionary endeavors. It's sort of a missionary sending church. Um, 
you see this, uh, this sort of this narrative pick up after you have Paul and Barnabas who are sent, who are, who are sort of called upon by the elders in Antioch to take the gifts to help support the Jerusalem church during this famine. They're sent down to Jerusalem. Well, the narrative picks up at the end of Acts chapter 12, and it says in verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So now you're seeing the focus. Everything was about Jerusalem and coming back to Jerusalem and going out from Jerusalem and what was taking place in Jerusalem. Now the, the sort of the narrative shifts and it's focusing on Paul and Barnabas and their return from Jerusalem back to Antioch. So they come back from Jerusalem after taking this gift, which says when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So now you have this reference to the joining up of John Mark uh, with them, and we'll, we'll go with them part of the way on their first missionary journey. So again, this shift is taking place here, and it's really prominent in, in uh, Acts chapter 12, this transition from Jerusalem to Antioch, and really from Peter to Paul. So from there, you, you hit uh, Acts chapter 13, and you see Acts chapter 13, where uh, we're now on mission, and much of the focus um, for the better part of the remaining chapters of Acts, centers on the missionary enterprise of the Apostle Paul and his, his various companions that travel with him or that he meets up with along the way and that, that travel with him for part of the time. Um, you, you, you see this large focus of the Apostle Paul and his missionary effort as the Apostle, the appointed Apostle to the Gentiles. And this first missionary journey is chronicled for us by Luke in Acts chapter 13 through 14. Last week, we started kind of looking at some of the characteristics that you see um, that I think are, are important to note for this particular journey, and really, in, in a bigger scheme of things, just the nature of this mission effort. And the first one we talked about very, very briefly is this, this reality of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in this case being set apart and sent out. In other words, this is not something that takes place in some autonomous fashion. The Apostle Paul does not uh, have this vision of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and have the resurrected Christ speak to him and be instrumental in a direct conversion experience and then sort of disciple him, if you will, while he's in Arabia. And that sort of empowers him to walk in this super-apostle, autonomous kind of fashion. You don't see that at all. In fact, you see what, would be, what we would be very familiar with, what we'd be, we'd be very comfortable with. It'd be no different than someone in our midst who would sense a call to the mission field and their lives would be observed and their, their, their qualifications would be evaluated and then they would be commissioned. And that's what happened. The, the church at Antioch uh, commissioned Paul and Barnabas after they were called by the Spirit. You see this um, there in Acts chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And it's important to note that Paul and Barnabas had been among them for a year or more, for sure. Had been ministering among them for some extended period of time. Their lives were on display. The integrity of their ministry was on display. Uh, their giftedness was on display and evaluated. So this was a, a, a very important, I think, uh, thing for Luke to record in terms of establishing a model for missionary commissioning. It's a local church commissioning kind of enterprise. 
And, and I think it's a good caution for us as, as the body of Christ to recognize that any time you have someone who wants to sort of operate in some kind of autonomous fashion in their ministry, somehow distinguished or separated from or not really fully accountable to a local church, that's something for us to be cautious of, right? That's something for us to be cautioned by. If even the Apostle Paul and Barnabas would follow this kind of model, given all that characterized their calling, all that characterized their unique gifting at this particular point in redemptive history, how much more so any of us, anyone in our midst who might uh, be called to the mission field or ministry in some way. It is a, a, a ministry of a local church that commissions them, that has, uh, that, to, to whom they have a level of accountability. So I think it's a really important thing that Luke records here for us to kind of give us a window into that, that important principle. The other thing that we looked at was this ministry pattern that you see uh, really clearly uh, developing. And this is not just in the first missionary journey, although you see it emerging there. It's this pattern of, of, um, of going into the synagogues first, reasoning from the scriptures with the Jews, and then in some way or another, turning attention to the Gentiles. And depending upon the reaction of the Jews, that might result in being run out of town. It might result in leaving town willingly. Uh, Different circumstances um, sort of dictate how that actually plays out. But it always begins with this principle that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That this actual... Uh, ministry pattern that he establishes, even in his missionary journeys, was tactically according to this particular model. Um, it wasn't just a theological uh, reality. It was actually a, a part of his tactical work in going into the synagogues. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, which is on the island of Crete, the first stop of the missionary, first missionary journey, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then from there we see how Luke um, start, begins to highlight the witness of Paul's, uh, highlight Paul's witness to this Roman proconsul, uh, who was really the most prominent um, Gentile on the island. So it begins in the synagogues, and it quickly moves to this encounter, this, in, this um, witness to this Roman proconsul. Uh, you see this model repeated over and over again, chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 43, chapter 14, verse 1, 15, 21, 17, 1, 18, 4, on and on and on it goes. It starts in the synagogue, and then it kind of moves its way out from there. And that's the pattern of ministry that you see for the Apostle Paul over and over and over again. And it just, it just indicates, you, you see the Apostle Paul having such heartbreak for his, for his own countrymen. You see him expressing that in the epistles, um, and so much so that, that, or this is so influenced by this this missionary effort that he undertakes where over and over and over again he goes in to reason from the scriptures with his people, with the Jewish people, only to, in many cases and in broad sweeping fashion, be rejected, be resisted, be persecuted over and over again, and yet he continues to repeat this ministry model. It speaks to, um, also to his level of commitment, and perse- perseverance, and courage um, to, to face down what he almost certainly knows is going to be 
some meaningful level of resistance and rejection and even physical harm. But he follows this pattern over and over again. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, kind of captures this in a really succinct way. It says this, now when they had passed, this is in the second missionary journey, but it just it sort, of, sort of sums this ministry pattern up very succinctly. Um, Acts chapter 17, 1 through 3, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So there they go into the synagogue. And Paul went in as was his custom. There it is. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving all that was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He was going into the synagogues and, and communicating to the Jewish people, our Messiah has indeed come. The one who was prophesied it has come and he has come in Christ and he was born and he lived and he died and he was resurrected. And, and so he was doing this 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 yeoman's work of ministering the gospel from Old Testament to the resurrection uh, to the Jewish people in spite of their response over and over again. Now, just a little quick um, point of background because this will come up again. And sometimes, you know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I see some of these references um, and I, 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 I get curious about, well, who was this person or what was that particular role or what was the you know, significance of that kind of figure or that kind of uh, job function or that kind of title. And so I want to kind of just give you a little bit of a, um, a broad background because this is going to come up again um, in Acts as we move, move forward. In this particular section in, in the first missionary journey, in Acts chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul is on the island of Cyprus ministering, and he does have this encounter um, uh, actually, they start in Salamis and they make their way down across the island to Paphos. We'll look at this in just a second, where he has this encounter um, where he ends up communicating with this proconsul, it says. Um, you see these different Roman uh, titles, these different Roman authorities that are mentioned in various places uh, throughout Acts. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of, of background to understand this. You, have, you had in the Roman Empire... Um, basically two different provinces. This is a map that kind of gives you an idea of what that would look like. But you'd have these senatorial provinces, and then you'd have these imperial provinces. And this gives you an indication. This, I think, map, this map is, uh, was dated in um, early 2nd century, eighty one seventeen something like that. I can't remember the specific date. But, but this gives you an idea of the, the provincial breakdown of the Roman Empire. And you have those pink uh, regions are senatorial provinces, and you have the green regions are imperial provinces. And so in Acts, you will have a reference, for example, as you have in Acts chapter 13, to this proconsul. A proconsul, he was a proconsul on the island of Cyprus, right here. And you see that as a pink shaded one, indicating that it's a senatorial province. And that would be the governing, the governing, delegated governing authority in a senatorial province in the Roman Empire. He had, he had administrative and you know, overall government oversight delegated by the Roman Empire in this particular senatorial province. All the green represents these imperial provinces, which are uh, overseen by the actual emperor, and they are characterized by more military uh, outposts. They, that, that there's a much stronger military presence. Um, in, in many of the senatorial provinces, there really might not be any military presence at all or very, very little. But in these green imperial provinces, it was characterized by strategic 
um, strategic locale, strong military presence, strategic defense of the empire, those kinds of things. And so those, those um, authorities, those delegated authorities in those imperial provinces are often referred to as prefects or governors. So the pilot, for example, is one of those governors. You get on into Acts and you see a reference to Felix as a governor of Judea, the province, the, the imperial province of Judea down there. So you have Felix and Festus, for example, as references there. So I just wanted to kind of give you that, that background. If you, see some, if you see a proconsul and you see a governor, they're essentially the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a Roman ruler of a, a Roman province. Um, one is delegated authority by the Roman Senate, and one is delegated authority by the emperor himself, and it's, it's much more of a, a military strength kind of province, um, strategic military strength kind of province. That's a very rough and broad stroke summary there. But I just want to kind of give you that, that context so when you start seeing these, these different titles, you kind of know what, what the significance is. So when you see the Apostle Paul engaged in gospel witness with a proconsul on the island of Cyprus, we're talking about the leading Roman authority, governing authority on the island of Cyprus. It's no small figure, in other words, that we're talking about here. Okay? So, moving forward now, in addition to this uh, ministry pattern that we just talked about, in addition to this, this being set apart and sent out, this commissioning model that, that, that uh, Luke uh, describes for us, you can, we also want to look at the geographic scope. And we quickly, quickly, quickly kind of took a look at a, a broad map of, of the travels, but we want to break this down a little bit more discreetly to, today. And just kind of take a look at, at the, the, the journey itself and, and, and where, it, where it occurred. Obviously, as we already know, it started in Antioch. Uh, that was where Paul and Barnabas were um, occupying a, a, some seat of ministerial leadership in the church there at Antioch. And that's where they were commissioned. And as we read from the passage, um, they were sent out from there. Of course, they, the, scripture references, the scripture just tells us in Acts that they went to Seleucia, which is just sort of the port there close to Antioch, and they set sail for Cyprus. Um, so there's nothing really to report from Seleucia other than that's where they left, and, uh, and they ended up um, starting off on Cyprus um, in the, the town of the city of Salamis. Now, one thing to note is that this is the point at which um, Saul begins to go by and is referenced as Paul. Um, so this is kind of a, another change, particularly in the narrative. Uh, it's possible or maybe even likely that this change took place because this, is, this was his, his Greek name as opposed to Saul being his Hebrew name. And so he, since his ministry is going to be predominantly in Gentile uh, regions and in Gentile populations, this was um, just a, a, a way of, of identifying by his name with the, his Greek version of his name with that, that predominant ministry environment. Um, it also could be that he did that as a result of some of the um, stumbling blocks that his name Saul might cause for those who heard of him and his persecution of Christians. You even see some of that early on in Acts where people start hearing the name Saul uh, after his conversion when he starts making his way out um, from Damascus and Arabia and interacting with Jewish Christians, and there, there's fear that they experience just by hearing his name because of 
the terror that he caused in his, his persecution efforts. So it could be that he was also trying to eliminate that stumbling block. We don't know for sure. But we do know that, the, that, that this is the point at which his, his name is now referenced as Paul as opposed to Saul in the, ta- in the text. Of course, uh, the, the text tells us that, that he goes from Salamis and he makes his way across the island of Cyprus and finds himself in Paphos. And this is where he has this encounter with, like I said before, this um, Roman proconsul. And, but more, more prominently, you have this encounter with Bar-Jesus is referenced there. Um, in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 to 12, and he's described as a magician, and he's a Jewish false prophet. Um, he also goes by Elymas. Interestingly enough, this Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of the Savior, son of salvation. Um, and Elymas is, is, is a word that means wise. And he's none of that, so in this case. Um, but it's interesting when you look at a broader historical reference on this point as well. We'll talk a little bit about this encounter, but... Um, you actually have a reference from Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman naval commander, first century Roman naval commander. Uh, he was a statesman, a historian. And a lot of what we know about, the Rome, uh, about Rome, ancient Rome, comes from his writings. And he said this about Cyprus. He said, There existed different groups of magicians from the time of Moses, such as Janus and Lotop, of whom the Jews had spoken of. And in fact, many thousands yearly follow after Zoroastrian ways, especially during the recent times on the island of Cyprus. So this was something that is kind of referenced, this presence of this kind of, of person, this kind of magician, was something that uh, was, was such, had such worthy notice that it was recorded by uh, an ancient, histor- ancient Roman historian as sort of a key characteristic of this particular island. But this encounter is really quite fascinating. Let's look at it together, because it has some really important, I think, principles to point, to, point us to as we think about um, this ministry and this mission effort, effort that the Apostle Paul is undertaking. So if you look in uh, chapter 13, and you start in verse 13, no, excuse me, start in verse 4, it says, So Paul, being sent out by the Holy Spirit... Excuse me. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, this is a man who is seeking to hear what Paul and Barnabas are teaching. A Gentile Roman leader who is pursuing interest in the gospel. By the way, the Sergius Paulus name, is there's, uh, there's been archaeological evidence that's been discovered. His name is a proconsul there. So another uh, historical reference of Luke that just continues to add credibility to his historical precision. But this man was seeking to hear the word of God from Paul and Barnabas. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Imagine that. But Saul, who was also called Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You have this incredible encounter that's recorded here by Luke, and it, it's, it somewhat mirrors the encounter that, that uh, Peter had with Simon Magus, if you remember him, earlier in Acts. Um, but this is sort of a, a, a bit of a mirrored kind of encounter um, that Luke records here with Paul. And it really is this indication or this highlighting of the power of God over the power of Satan, the power of God over all the, the entire spiritual world. It is a direct confrontation of the enemy himself. And it's a really important reminder for us as God's people when we think about our mission effort and our ministry endeavor that our enemy is alive and active. That that we are facing, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood as the Apostle Paul says. And so Luke records this encounter where you have this man who is seeking to thwart the, the, the communication of God's word to someone who is seeking to, ha- to be taught. And he, he immediately identifies him as a son of the devil and confronts him and, and basically brings a form of judgment upon him by striking him blind. This is a significant statement that God is making about his uh, power over the forces of darkness and how the forces of darkness are active and at work in any ministry effort that is truly of God. But it's also an indication of the judgment of God against anyone who would seek to lead people away from the gospel in in any form and fashion. You see Jesus kind of speaking to this in a a certain way in Luke chapter 17 when he speaks of causing a little one to stumble. You'd be better off if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into the sea. Just giving this vivid picture of the stark judgment, the, 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 the anger and wrath of God against anyone who would seek to lure someone away, draw someone away from hearing the gospel, being able to be exposed to the truth of God's word. That's why over and over and over again you see as the the ministry of the New Testament church unfolds, as the doctrine of the New Testament church becomes more formalized and more solidified in the New Testament canon, you see over and over again the Apostle Paul in particular writing vehemently against the threat of false teaching in the church. And, and, and over and over again, similar references to what's really behind that kind of false teaching. Doctrines of demons is one uh, descriptive term that's often used. So you have this encounter that sort of puts that on vivid display right here at the very beginning of Paul's missionary endeavor there on the island of Cyprus. It's an amazing account, but it's also a really important reminder for us. Well, then you have him leaving from there uh, after this great um, work of salvation among uh, or with uh, this proconsul. It's interesting to note as well, too, at the very end there, it says, The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
We've made this point several times. You can see this reference. Luke is very careful to reference this over and over again. In the, in, even in the presence of or in the witness of some type of uh, divine act, some type of miraculous act, whether it's a healing or something of this nature, you always see Luke reference the teaching as what is the focal point. So the, the act, the miracle, the divine intervention is always intended to point to the message. And here it is again. You have this example once again where even this proconsul, it says, Luke describes as being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It doesn't say that he was just wowed by this miracle that happened, this, this, this sort of cursed type of miracle of striking Bar-Jesus blind, but he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it's a very important principle of, of what, this, what the point of these types of acts are and what they point to uh, in Acts. Well, from there, um, they set sail and head to Perga. Um, really not a lot mentioned in, about Perga. Uh, we just have the reference there that at this point John left them. Um, it's, it's, it's uncertain whether he le- left them from Perga or from Cyprus. It's hard to tell from the text, but uh, I think most people believe that, that he left them from Cyprus before they set sail to Perga. Does anybody know the answer to that for certain? Has anybody studied that carefully? Because the text just says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Um, but they went from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. All we know is that that's the point in which John Mark separates from them. And as we'll see as the, as the narrative unfolds bef- uh, down into the second missionary journey, this also creates a point of a bit of ministry division between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants to take John Mark again on the second missionary journey. The Apostle Paul doesn't feel like he's really ready to do that because he left before and doesn't think that he'll, he'll maintain his stamina, it seems, or his, his commitment, it seems. Um, and so they separate and go separate ways um, in their missionary endeavor. But this is the point where we have the reference of John Mark leaving um, from this particular trip, this particular journey. They make their way to uh, Antioch and Pisidia. And uh, this gets them into um, the region of churches that uh, become sort of the focal point of Galatians, the writing of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Um, this whole region that they're about to enter into is, is an important region, particularly when you think about the, um, the nature of the gospel message and what the meaning of the gospel is, and the application of the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles, becomes really important, and we'll see that on full display in the um, account in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. Um, Acts chapter 13, verses 37 to 39, um, this actually, is in Antioch in Pisidia, before I get there, you have verses 13 all the way down through verse 41, which represents Paul's longest sermon. Oftentimes, people go to, to Acts chapter 17 in his sermon on Mars Hill at the Areopagus with the Athenians and the Athenian philosophers as, as a prominent sermon of the Apostle Paul. But this is actually, in terms of length, it's the longest. Um, and it's a, it's a sermon that he communicates to the Jewish people there in the synagogue in, in Antioch of Pisidia. Just a reminder that there's two Antiochs, and this is the one that's in that that Galatian region um, there in Asia Minor, Antioch of Pisidia. But you have this long sermon that begins um, there in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. It says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day 
they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So you see the Apostle Paul. Again, this is, the, this is a, a vivid example of what Paul did. He's reasoning with them from the Scriptures. So if you just sort of take this long sermon to the Jews and you plug it in to these other places where it says, and Paul entered the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews, this is probably a good snapshot of what that kind of looked like. He would, he would, he would use that time in the synagogue to reference Old Testament truth that they were very, very familiar with and work his way down all the way through to Christ and his resurrection and the implications of that resurrection and the identification of him as the promised Messiah, the one that they had long hoped for and expected. He is the one. That was his, his whole trajectory of his message to the Jewish people. And he would take them through the Old Testament and through the prophets, and he did that very thing here. Um, you see in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, now he's taking them into recent history, out of the New Testament into recent history. The prophets foretold this, and it happened. And here's what happened, just so you know. This is what, what happened, just as you may have likely heard. This is what happened. Pilate had him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, again, a reference to prophecy in the Old Testament, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to this people. Again, connecting what they already knew with what had happened in Christ and his res- with Christ and his resurrection. He goes on to speak of of David and, uh, and prophecies related to uh, that people would necessarily associate with David but aren't associated with David. They're associated with Christ. Um, David is still in the grave. Christ is resurrected. But it says there in verse 37 to 39, this is really the key. This is really where uh, the crux of the message comes to bear. It says, he's talking of Christ, and it says, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That that is the nub of it. You could actually go up to verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption like David did. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is an astounding message that he's delivering. And in fact, this becomes a point of tremendous contention. So much so that even the very believers in this region that he is ministering to 
uh, become the focal point or part of the focal point of this Judaizing type of message that begins to take root that had to be settled and resolved in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Some commentators would even, would even, even believe that, that some of the men of the party of the circumcision, those Jews who believed that in order to be saved, you not only had to accept or believe in Christ by faith for salvation, but you also had to be circumcised and you also had to follow the law of Moses. In other words, you had to convert to Judaism. You had to do everything that someone who was not a Jew had to do to become a Jewish convert before Christ, but also believe in Christ as the Messiah. And so this message that was being delivered was in complete contradiction to the original gospel that the Apostle Paul brought to these people in this particular region. And again, if you think about Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is where this connection point really happens. It's this message that you have to have Christ plus this, plus this, plus this in order to be saved. And the Apostle Paul's message couldn't have been more clear even to the Jewish people in Antioch of Pisidia as a starting point, as we see it vividly displayed here. And this reference to what you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. In other words, everything that you have thought would be adequate or sufficient for your salvation is just the opposite. It's totally inadequate. In fact, it's what puts us in bondage. And so he, he clarifies this gospel message. And this will come into full fruition at the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter uh, 15, as we'll get to it probably in, hopefully next week we'll get to it. Um, you see the similar reaction there that takes place. You have those that are just outraged by this kind of message. It's, a, it's, a, it's an affront to, uh, to their sense and understanding of Judaism. You have others who believe. This is kind of the common thing that also takes place where you have some Jews who believe. You have God-fearers, God-fearing uh, Gentiles who believe in, in the one true God of, of Judaism, but they're not Jewish converts who believe. You have some Gentiles who believe, and you have some Jews that are just outraged and want to run them out of town or want to put them in prison or want to do violence to them physically. And so a similar thing uh, takes place here in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And of course, there's celebration among the Gentiles when they hear this. They begin rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's another important theological point that you see revealed to us in this key chronicling of early redemptive history in the New Covenant uh, and in the Gospel witness. You see this in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout, no, excuse me, in verse uh, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The sovereignty of God in appointing those to eternal life is an important theological point that's, that's highlighted here even in this uh, text and act, which is a, just a historical narrative. And this is how it's laid out. You see a similar, um, a similar reference to this in, this, in, the, in the testimony of 
Lydia's salvation, where it says that the Lord opened her heart to listen to what Paul had to say. Uh, and so you have these reference points in Acts and in, in Luke's narrative about this theological principle of what is necessary for salvation. That is that the Lord opens our hearts. The Lord has appointed us to eternal life. And you think about the Apostle Paul and all that he endured and all that he will endure as in, in subsequent stops. This had to be a driving, motivating force for him. I mean, you see it just playing out in very practical ways because in this ministry pattern where he would go into a town fully expecting some of the reaction that he would get, fully expecting to be maligned and ridiculed, fully expecting to even possibly face physical harm, and yet he would continue to bring the message of the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles over and over and over again in much the same way and much the same pattern. Why? because he found that he was so clever and ingenious and had tested all these other methods and all these other approaches and landed on this one as the best after doing you know, focus groups and marketing research and all that? No. He knew that if he went into every town and presented a clear gospel message, presented the truth of God, that there were people in that community who would be appointed unto eternal life. And God would use the clarity of that message to bring them to salvation. And it was really simple and probably very liberating, but also a tremendous point of, of motivation for perseverance for the Apostle Paul. Someone who was beaten, who was captured, who was imprisoned, who was stoned. We'll see in Lystra, he gets stoned almost to death, and yet he continued to be motivated to spread this gospel, knowing that there were those who were appointed to salvation, who were appointed to eternal life to believe. Well, from there, we see him go from from Antioch and Pisidia to Iconium. Again, the same kind of approach takes place there and going into the synagogue. A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Same kind of response, but the same kind of approach that he takes. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. There was an attempt that was made by both the Gentiles and Jews and the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And they learned of it and they fled to, Jerusalem, uh, to Lystra and Derbe. So the, the, the intensity in that particular stop gets so great that they have to flee. And there's a threat that they would be stoned. So they take off to Lystra. And when they get to Lystra, they end up healing a, a crippled man who had been crippled from birth. And this leads to a very interesting uh, occurrence, which I think is a, a, another great testimony of, of the humility of the Apostle Paul and of Barnabas and their understanding of who they were before God and what they'd been called to. But you have this really interesting account in Lystra where uh, they heal this man who was crippled from birth, it says there in verse 8 of chapter 14. And it says, And Paul, looking intently at him, uh, seeing him that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright to your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And get this, in verse 11, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lycaononian, I can't pronounce that. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So the people there start thinking that Paul and Barnabas are gods in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. I mean, this this turns into a full-on 
sacrificial worship service to pagan deities, thinking that Paul and Barnabas are the embodiment of them. And here's what Paul and Barnabas do. Verse 14, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they, were, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, you have this example of healing, of miraculous divine healing, of, of no, an unmistakable demonstration of the power of God manifested through the Apostle Paul to heal this man who would, was crippled from birth. And it was such an astonishing experience that the pagan people that were gathered there thought that they were being visited by the embodiment of a pantheon god, Zeus and Herm, pantheons of gods Zeus and Hermes, went so far as the priest of Zeus to bring an oxen to sacrifice to them. I mean, this, this went all the way in terms of the, the level of worship and adoration. And yet, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are immediately stunned and, and broken by this reality and immediately go to them to try to share the gospel with them and to change their thinking away from the worship of them to the worship of the one true God who made the land and the sea and everything in it. Now, this is an example of the kind of humility that you often don't necessarily see amongst those who would um, rise to levels of power and influence, and in, even in particular, those who would claim to have some type of miraculous gift power. There's often a self-serving motivation. There's often a, a sort of a celebration of their influence and their power. And you see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they could have ridden this wave as far as they wanted to. They could have even sought to use this as some strategic angle into bringing the gospel to them. Well, if they think we're gods, let's maybe, let's maybe see if we can play that out a little bit and use that influence to turn them the other way. But no, there was a complete rejection of that and a complete response to uh, humbly acknowledge that we are just men like you. That what you saw manifested was nothing other than the power of God. It had nothing to do with us. Nothing. It's a great testimony of, of humility. Well, to kind of get us a little bit further along and, and we'll wrap up here, um, this takes place, obviously, in Lystra, and you see what happens in verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, city supposing that he was dead. Now, the interesting part about this, aside from the fact that the Apostle Paul was thought to be dead, and he was, it's, in other words, this is an indication that he was literally stoned in the manner in which Stephen was stoned and actually did die, But look at what it says. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe and continued on with his mission enterprise, moving into Derbe to continue to take the gospel forward. This is the kind of ministry courage and conviction that the Apostle Paul demonstrated over and over and over again. Faithful in the face of the worst kinds of conditions, the worst kind of insults, the worst kind of threats in every city that he went into. Now, just it, it's, I think it's very difficult for us to find ourselves effectively empathizing with that kind of reality. 
But I think we should try. Because I think that it is a testimony of a man who did not claim to have some kind of special power. We see that demonstrated right there in Lystra, where he's wanting to be worshipped as a god. And he immediately testifies to the fact that he is just a vessel that God is using. That is it, nothing more. And yet his willingness to, to stand up to persecution and ridicule and to go in town after town after town is a great testimony to us about our need to walk in that kind of conviction and that kind of courage. And to recognize that our message needs to be just as clear and just as consistent. That our cleverness, our persuasive capabilities are not what is needed, but a clear presentation of the gospel, recognizing that is the the Lord is the one who actually saves. Okay. We're out of time. I know I kept you guys long. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.